Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim wraps up our mini-series from the life of Joseph, and we take a step back and consider a passage from Acts as we look at the ramifications of what we have been studying. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. And uh, if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2, New Testament book of Acts chapter 2. I know. You're groaning. Internally, maybe. Uh, We're going to take just a week break from our Genesis study um, and look at the New Testament book of Acts, uh, in part because this is a a different day. Um, This is a big celebration of baptism. We want to talk a little bit about what is it we're doing and and why is it we do what we do. Um, But also, in some ways, Acts chapter 2 answers a question that uh, the book of Genesis tees up for us. So one of the questions when you read Genesis is, um, it's really hard to look at the, this, this family that God is partnering with that will become the nation of Israel and not to, to find ourselves asking the question, like, why, why does God continue to partner with this family? Right? Growing up, I'd always heard of these heroic figures, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and these really heroes of the faith who stepped out in courage and uh, they're willing to trust God with everything. And that, that's certainly true. And... Uh, when you actually get into the story, what we recognize is we've been looking at all of these different examples of this, uh, they are far from perfect. Uh, this family messes up again and again and again, and it's not just little mess ups. Uh, we have some pretty tragic stories of family dysfunction, of violence, of assault. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, of, of fathers choosing some sons over others and then watching how that plays out, or mothers choosing preference over some children over other children and seeing how that plays out. And you, you read the story and you think, okay, but why is God still working with this family? Why doesn't he say, okay, you guys, you ran your course. I'm going to find a family that's a little more faithful. Yes, you have your good moments, but I'm going to find a family that's a little bit better at this. Um, what, so that question's left hanging in our text. Uh, we're going to come back to it and see how the story wraps up in Joseph's, in Joseph's life. But uh, one of the things that's been consistent Uh, in the book of Genesis, and it's going to be consistent and seen most clearly through the life of Jesus and the early church, is who God is throughout this story. So while the family's trying to figure out who they are and how do they they walk in faith, uh, God's character is consistent. And how God chooses to partner with people, even when we're flawed, uh, is consistent. Uh, So we're going to jump to the New Testament. Uh, We are leaving the book of Genesis. We're jumping way ahead, about 2,000 years to be precise, to the rise, to the birth and the rise of the very first church. Uh, the history of that movement is uh, recorded in a book called Acts. It functions as a history book of the rise and birth of the early church. What's really interesting about the rise of the church is that it is rising in like who we are at the same time as a global military empire is rising. That's also found in our Bible. Um, that empire is known as. The Romans. Uh, the Roman Empire is uh, perhaps the largest empire at its height. It stretched from India to England. A uh, massive, massive empire, largest empire the world's ever seen, at least arguably. Um, uh, at the time between Joseph 
and the book of Acts, we've seen many empires rise and fall, and they're mentioned in our Bible. The Bible's interacting with them in many ways. Uh, so we, uh, under the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses stories, that's all Egypt. Uh, then Egypt's going to kind of take a back seat, and we're going to see the rise of an empire known as the Assyrians. That, that kind of comes around King David, uh, his son Solomon's time. And then the Assyrians will, will, will fall out of favor, and the Babylonians are going to rise to the surface. And the Babylonians, uh, they, they're, um, all those big names at the end of our Old Testament, many and most of those are about the Babylonians, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, and then the rest of them, all the prophets. Uh, that's the Babylonians. Uh, then, toward the end of the Old Testament, we're introduced to a new empire known as the Persians. And uh, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, they're interacting with the Persians. Uh, then we get to a page in our Bibles. It represents 400 or so years. Um, but there's a blank page between our Old Testament and our New Testament. During that blank page, there is a rise of an empire known as the Greeks, Alexander and the Greeks. And the Greeks are then replaced by and large by the Roman Empire, which is on its rise in the time of Jesus and the early church. Now, uh, the Roman Empire uh, builds a lot of its empire on the backs of the Greeks. Uh, so the Greeks were the ones who introduced to the world modern philosophy, modern medicine, uh, how we often think of medicine and how medical practice um, the Greeks were the ones who gave us that. Uh, the Greeks were the ones who introduced our modern understanding of democracy. Um, a lot of our politics can have a direct, you can trace a direct line back to the Greeks. Uh, and the Greeks were the ones who introduced to us modern storytelling. You, you can trace a direct line from the Greeks, yada, 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 Barbie. Oppenheimer, whatever, whatever your movies are. Uh, there's like a direct connection between the way they told stories. Um, the, to the Greeks, they had this ground, relatively groundbreaking new idea of how do we tell stories. Up until this time, the way you would tell stories was essentially it was propaganda. You would tell stories about how your people are better than their people, and your gods, your religion is better than their gods. And it was Make me great and make you small. That was, that was ancient storytelling. What's, by the way, revolutionary about the, the biblical text, it's the lone example of ancient literature that is constantly talking about their heroes as weak um, and is really, really honest with who Abraham actually is and who Isaac actually is. It's like the furthest thing from propaganda. Um, but the Greeks introduced this concept. What they understand is, okay, every main character, if a story is going to be interesting, if we're going to root for the main character, every main character in a story uh, is, is got to have some kind of a fatal flaw. It's a word that they refer to as hamartia, a fatal flaw. Something's wrong with this hero that they have to overcome. So Achilles, the greatest warrior ever, according to the Roman or Greek storytelling, Achilles is a great soldier. And yet when he was born, his mom had to dip him in these like holy waters, and so she holds him by his Achilles tendon and dips him, and so he's got a fatal weakness, and it's his, his, his uh, tendon. Uh, every story we tell today, if you watch the stories closely, that we, we follow the same playbook, right? You've got uh, Batman, major hero, but he's got to overcome this family grief of losing a loved one at a young age. Superman has kryptonite. Um, Barbie. I actually haven't seen Barbie, but I'm going to predict the story of Barbie. Uh, Barbie, I'm guessing Ryan Gosling has to, in order to like, 
Like, be a hero in that story. My guess is Ryan Gosling has to overcome his womanizing ways, because that's every Ryan Gosling movie, right? Like, it's like his fatal flaw, like that. I don't know if that's the plot. You, you tell me later. Um, but Hamartia is in almost every story we still tell. And uh, you, you see this, and you have to back up a bit and ask the question, why did Hamartia win? This idea of a fatal flaw. Why does this win? The Greek way of storytelling, why does it win? Um, so much so, get this, that when the New Testament writers, okay, I'll, let me ask this another way. Uh, bonus harbor points. Hamartia shows up in your Bible, in your New Testament. It's a Greek word. Anyone know what hamartia is translated in the New Testament as? I, by the way, I do not expect you to know this. This is just trivia. Sin. Who was this? All right, all right, yes, sin. Of course, John. Uh, sin. Uh, hamartia is the word that gets placed on our concept in our New Testament of sin, uh, taking that, the Hebrew understanding of sin, of, of missing the mark of of who God is and God's commandment to us, they said, okay, well, that is hamartia. That's the fatal flaw. Uh, hamartia, um, why did it win? I wonder if deep down the reason why hamartia wins in ancient storytelling is because deep down you and I are convinced that it may be true about us. There may be some hamartia, some fatal flaw, something that makes us miss the mark that would disqualify us. Um, because we, we know we're not perfect, right? We see ourselves in the mirror. We, we can fool people. We know how we do that. Um, but, but we see who we are in the mirror, and we know that that thing, those things, those could be, like, you, if those play out, that could lead to, actually lead to our downfall. Uh, I, um, I remember this moment. Uh, here, let me tell you a story. Um, I remember this moment where I was, 27 years old. I remember exactly where I was. I was 27 years old, and I was sitting down at uh, Butch's Restaurant in Holland, Michigan. Have you ever been to Butch's Restaurant? Yeah, okay. Uh, 27 years old. I was sitting in, in Butch's Restaurant with a friend of mine. Um, this friend had, uh, uh, had recently gotten married and had his first child, and uh, I was sitting down. His name is Jeremy, by the way. He's one of our pastors at Harbor Churches now, and we've been best friends forever, um, and which you write on your trapper keepers as kids. That's Jeremy. Uh, we've been best friends for a long time, and uh, we were sitting down at uh, Butch's restaurant, and I, um, I'm 27 years old. I'm single at this point. Um, all, most of my friends have gotten married. Many of them have begun having children, and I'm in my late 20s, and I'm a pastor, and I, uh, I am not in any relationship at this point. Um, i I didn't even have anyone that I could think of that I could be in a relationship with at that point. Uh, and the worst part was it wasn't, it wasn't for lack of trying. Uh, I, I actually went, on, uh, went through a season where I went on a lot of dates, like, a, like too many dates. And so I'm out with my friend, Jeremy, and I'm telling him, I'm lamenting this. And um, at one point he says, Tim, what's, what's wrong? Like, what, what do you... And I, I remember saying to him, I think I'm done. Like, I think I'm done dating. Um, I'm a pastor. I don't want a reputation if I keep going on date. Like, I don't want a reputation. So I think I maybe just be done dating. I'll just be single. Like, I'll be the single guy. Like, I'll, I'll stay single. There's nothing, no shame in that. I'll, I'll do that. Uh, but the truth that I wouldn't even admit to my good friend at that time, um, the truth was uh, I was actually beginning to wonder if there was something wrong with me. Um, because... 
you know, if it's one date that goes wrong, you're like, okay, maybe there's something wrong with her, or there's another, it's okay, that's something about her. But after so many, you realize, oh, maybe it's not about them. Maybe the problem is, is me, and um, maybe that's the fatal flaw. Uh, if you've ever felt like there was a part of you that was broken, um, especially something as central to who we are as the ability to be loved and to love, uh, this whole idea, by the way, of brokenness can become cliched. We can like, use that language in Christian circles to say, like, look how broken I am. And God, um, But if you've actually ever felt broken, what I've discovered is that most people, when they feel broken, don't brag about it. We try to hide it. Um, it hurts. And uh, uh, I spent a lot of nights that season listening to Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks album. And uh, that album was, uh, for me, it just felt like I have a harmartia, a fatal flaw. So uh, this morning, in the next 20 minutes or so, I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about what happens when the good news of Jesus Christ meets our fatal flaw. When the good news of Jesus meets our bad news. Uh, and to get at that, let's look at Acts chapter 8. It's a, one of my favorite stories in our Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip. Philip uh, is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Jesus has just sent his disciples into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and he told them about the good news of Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, hey, look, there's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Let's pause our story here. That's this question. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? The answer is a lot of things. Uh, to be honest, uh, first and foremost, this man is a eunuch. And the Bible is explicit and very clear about uh, whether or not eunuchs are, part, are, are in the in-group. Uh, in fact, in Deuteronomy 23, we have this passage. It doesn't blur the words. Um, it, it says this, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Pretty clear, would you agree? Okay, uh, so what stands in the way of my being baptized? Number one, he's a eunuch. Doesn't stop there. There's more reasons. Number two, uh, these are all the reasons that Philip's looking for an out. Number one, you're a eunuch. I'm sorry, the Bible says I can't. Number two, the Bible prohibits it. So if I do this, it's not just because you're a eunuch I can't do it, but the Bible says I can't do it. Uh, in our day and age, if, if somebody's doing heresy, 
disobeying the Bible, we make a TikTok about it. In those days, in, in that day and age, they killed you. They stoned you. It was heresy, blasphemy. So number two, Bible prohibits it. Number three, uh, this man is an Ethiopian. And Ethiopians at this time in history are the enemies of the Israelite people. Uh, in fact, uh, in the Old Testament, Ethiopia is referred to by another name. That word in the Old Testament is the word Cush. Cush, it was a major empire just south of Egypt. Uh, the, the empire of Cush shows up three times in our Old Testament. Uh, twice in the book of Esther and once in the book of Isaiah. All three times Cush is mentioned in our Old Testament it's about the Jewish people needing to wipe out or destroy the people of Cush. In Isaiah, the, one of the three, in Isaiah, uh, it actually refers to uh, wiping them out in a certain location, a location known as the land of Philistia, which is later referred to as the land of Gaza, which just so happens to be right where this man is. So the passage in Isaiah says, hey, by the way, if you bump into a man from Cush, wipe them out. And now you bump into them in the very spot that that passage says to wipe them out. Now, why would the Old Testament say this? Well, there was a history behind Cush. They did some pretty ugly things. As one commentator uh, records it, the Ethiopians were looked upon as the meanest and most despicable of the nations. Okay, so we got three strikes against the Ethiopians. Why, why can't I get baptized? What would keep me? Well, you're a eunuch. Bible says I can't do it. And by the way, your people are my people's enemies. We're supposed to hate you. But there's more reasons. Number four, we're told in the story that the man is driving a chariot. Uh, now, chariot, for us, again, uh, kind of loses some of its meaning. Um, but, it, but for them, a chariot was a symbol of war. It would be like saying, uh, I saw an enemy, and they were driving a tank. And he, the, by the way, he's working for the queen of this foreign empire, and uh, she has used these chariots. She's moved in these chariots to attack your people in the past. Number five reason why, Philip, why, why, what prevents me from baptizing, getting baptized, is the little detail about where Philip meets this man. We are told that Philip meets this man on a road heading from Jerusalem to Gaza. Let me show you that on a map. Uh, somewhere, we don't know exactly where, but somewhere... In here, today, this area is known uh, by another name. We refer to this area as the Gaza Strip. Why do I know that word? Why do I know the Gaza Strip? The Gaza Strip, to this day, is one of the most uh, violent war zones. People ask when we lead ships to Israel, are we going to the Gaza Strip? No, <laughs> we are not going to the Gaza Strip is still to this day one of the most uh, violent war zones. Why? Because that, if you go back to the next last slide... There's a road connecting Egypt to Rome, Greece, Babylon, Persia, Assyria. There's a road, and on one side of the road, there's water, the Mediterranean Sea. On the other side of the road are mountains, so it's a thin stretch of land. And so whoever controls the road, road controls the world. And so you have nations passing by this ancient spice route. Uh, it's kind of like two hockey teams going out to greet each other. You're just like sizing each other up. Like, who am I going to fight later, right? Like, this is, this is the Gaza Strip. And here we read that the Spirit says to, to Philip, I need you to go stand next to the chariot uh, in the Gaza Strip. I need you, Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus, I want you to go up to the chariot of your enemy, 
that you're supposed to hate. I don't want you to go stand in front of the, the chariot and go talk to that guy. Then that's reason number five. Okay, so reason number six, Gaza is not Jerusalem. And then reason number seven, and Philip is not a priest. If you read the story, the Ethiopian eunuch goes to Jerusalem first because he knows how the system works. Jerusalem is the city of God. The priests are the ones throughout our Old Testament, literally like one third of our Old Testament is all descriptions of how the priest is the one to make you ceremonially clean. So if you've done something, you feel like you're not clean, they're the ones who get to to do their thing and they get to declare you clean. But he's not in Jerusalem. He's tried to go to Jerusalem. Apparently they didn't want him in Jerusalem. And so apparently they reject him. And so now he's in the middle of the war zone in his tank and he's not in Jerusalem. Reason number eight, last reason. This is at least, there's there's probably more, but this is the last one I can think of. Uh, This has never been done before. Ever. No one who wasn't Jewish has been baptized that we know of. No one who wasn't Jewish has been baptized yet. This is brand new territory. Uh, The the Jewish people uh, throughout our Old Testament are tribal people. And they're often asking the question of where's our tribe and where are the rest of the tribes? Jews and Gentiles, all the others. Uh, And so they've not baptized other people before. They've not done ceremonial cleansing over other people before. This man goes to Jerusalem and he's turned away because lots of people are turned away. By the way, the people that turn them away are the same religious leaders that uh, just a couple chapters earlier and just a couple of weeks earlier killed Jesus. So the whole like, well, Jesus told me to do it. Yeah, yeah, that ends with your death. They killed him. So why? Uh, Philip, what would prevent me? There's water. You told me about Jesus. What prevents me from getting baptized? Philip could run his list, couldn't he? Namely, uh, dude, you seem great, but I don't want to die. Right? Like, uh, 18 years ago, I, um, I was a college pastor in Holland, and uh, after one of the services, um, there was this moment, uh, after one of our gatherings, um, there was this moment where this girl walked up to me, and she told me the story. She said, uh, can we, well, can we meet and talk? And so I said, absolutely, we can meet and talk. And she said, uh, I made a vow in high school, um, and they gave me a ring, a purity ring. I made a vow in high school that I wouldn't have sex before marriage. And so they gave me this ring. And the pastor at the time said that um, they use this metaphor of to have sex before marriage is like chewing gum, and uh, it like loses its flavor. And then they use this other metaphor of it's like uh, opening a can of soda and it loses its fizz and, you know, like soda without its fizz doesn't taste very good. And she said, well, I, um, uh, I did and I'm just like racked with guilt. And she said, uh, I feel like I am used chewing gum and I feel like I am soda that no one will want. And I'm, uh, I, I vividly remember her telling me this. She's like, I, I, tell me this is not an impossible decision. She says, I was given this ring. I did the thing. If I leave the ring on, I am a liar. But if I take the ring off, what are they going to say about me? She didn't just feel broken. She, at some level, had been told that she, she absolutely was broken. Like if, uh, 
she were to ask the question, oh, Philip, Tim, whoever, what stands in the way of my, me getting baptized? She would have like, there would be like this giant list of reasons. Like, here are all the reasons. You did all these things wrong. Here's um, what she needed in that moment, though, I realized was she didn't need me to give her a list of reasons. She had her own list already. I didn't need to add to her list. We all already have our own list, do we not? All of the things. We don't need anyone else to tell us their list, what we got wrong against us. We have our own list. Philip could have given the Ethiopian eunuch a list, but he doesn't. I gave you some obvious ones, the eight, um, but he doesn't. There's more. Um, He doesn't. He didn't say any of this. Philip simply baptizes him. He risks his own reputation. He risks his own life, and he baptizes him. Why? Okay, now... um, I find this next part really, really interesting. Okay, so see if you can stay with me on this. Uh, I find this interesting. I want to show you what I think is going on in Philip's head when he's wrestling with the reality of if I do this, I'll be the first to do this. It's illegal. I'll get killed potentially if they find out. It's, um, and he'll end up doing it. So what's the thought pattern? Why does he do what he does? Why does he baptize this man, this enemy? Uh, first, a, a question. When Philip meets the eunuch, what is the eunuch doing? Not a trick question. He's reading. Okay, so he's reading, uh, and, uh, and what's he reading from? The, Isaiah. So, uh, so in particular, uh, if, if he wants to know what he's reading, if you read the story closely, he has to kind of come up close to the Ethiopian eunuch and kind of lean over his shoulder and see what he's reading. So he's, he's actually got to kind of get close uh, now, the man, what's the man reading? He's reading Isaiah. Uh, the text doesn't give us the exact reference, but it does tell us what he's reading. And we know uh, that what he's reading is Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 53 is a famous passage. It's a passage that we often talk about in reference to Jesus, partly because Philip talks about it in reference to Jesus, but partly because if you read Isaiah 53, it describes what it refers to as a suffering servant. And you read Isaiah 53, and you can't help, it's just the passage we looked at, who, it, so you ask the question, is this a coincidence? Why is the man reading this passage? Why does he take this scroll with him? The Bible is in scrolls at this time. You don't take it, like, you've got to purposefully choose. They're, they're big. So why does he take this particular scroll? I think it's intentional. Because if you read through uh, the passage, Isaiah 53 seems to talk a lot about Jesus. Yeah, we look at it and say that that talks about Jesus. But it also seems to describe what he must be feeling. Right? Read it again and just put yourself in the, the eunuch's shoes. It feels like it describes a lot of what he's got to be feeling in this moment. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah 53 is that I, the, this description of the suffering servant doesn't start in the passage he's reading. It's that story, and most likely the scroll he's carrying, would have started a few verses earlier in Isaiah 52, where the story of the suffering servant starts. Notice what that passage says. This is how the story of the suffering servant begins. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Who does that sound like? The eunuch. And who else does that sound like? What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus, yeah. And then notice what comes next. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. 
For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. What does the man say to Philip? How can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? In a brilliant move, the eunuch actually takes the story itself and he says to Philip, do you know the story, Philip? How can I understand? Who is this guy? Is this guy real? This suffering servant I'm reading about, is he real? And if he's real, where can I find him? Now that language in the text, uh, so he will sprinkle many nations. Would you agree that sprinkle is an odd word to use? It's a weird word. Um, Sprinkle. Uh, Okay, brace yourself. Sprinkle, I looked it up. I I was like, this is a weird word. Sprinkle is a Hebrew word. Uh, In Hebrew, it's the word nazah. Nazah. Sounds fun to say. Nazah. Um, Nazah shows up in our Old Testament 20 times. 20 times this word sprinkle shows up. And it's always in reference to what the priest does uh, to make somebody clean. Sprinkle blood or sprinkle water on the altar in Jerusalem. 20 times it shows up throughout our Old Testament, and it's always about what the priest does in the temple in Jerusalem, except here. So 19 times it's about the priest in Jerusalem and what the priest does. He's gone there. Priest wouldn't do it, apparently. But there's one reference, and this reference is interesting because it's not about the priest doing it in Jerusalem over there. This reference talks about a suffering servant. So somebody feels it. And the language is, he will, he will sprinkle who? Many nations. Why does the foreigner who's been crushed have this scroll? He's been to Jerusalem. They've rejected him. And so he comes here and he essentially says to Philip, can you tell me I still have a chance? This man is hungry for God, but he can't get in. That journey, by the way, from the land of Cush, Ethiopia, to the Gaza Strip, uh, type it in MapQuest. It takes about 48 to 60 days if you're traveling 25 miles an hour, one way. 48 to 60 days. Uh, This man has been traveling. He's hungry for healing. He's desperate for it. He's gone to the temple, and apparently they said, I'm so sorry, but we got these like eight rules, and you really can't. I'm sorry we can't do it. Um, or maybe they just flat out rejected him. But he's hungry. And so he grabs the one scroll that seems to describe someone who, who will do it, who will heal the nations, somebody who gets it, somebody who suffered, and he wants to know. 19 times it's the priest in Jerusalem that Natsah has mentioned, but one time this guy, and he He'll sprinkle the nations. He'll bring healing to the nations. Will you tell me about him? And then Philip says, yeah, I I know who you're talking about. So what stands in my way? Now he's got a choice. Because I could get killed. But what he's really asking in this moment is, is the good news of Jesus good for me too? It's the good news of Jesus, good enough to handle all my bad news. Uh, Which brings us to here now. Um, Because this is the question, I think, if we're really honest with ourselves, we ask all the time. Uh, I cannot tell you how many times I've found myself asking myself the question, am I a good man? Uh, I, I would actually dare argue that most of us have found ourselves asking a variation of that question, 
Uh, I think it's most, I think men especially, I can't speak on behalf of women, but I think men especially, we find ourselves asking this question. Um, by the way, the women in our lives, uh, a little secret, sometimes we're waiting for you to remind us that we are. Sometimes it's helpful to hear it. Um, am I really a good man? Am I, uh, we, we struggle with our fatal flaw, our hamartia, uh, our bad news and our list. And we wonder, uh, if people knew it, would they still accept me? And maybe even we find ourselves asking, if God knew it, would he actually accept me? What happens when the good news meets our bad news? This is why we do what we do as a church. If you're new with us, this is important that you know this. This is why we do what we do as a church. The Ethiopian eunuch comes to Jerusalem because he's hungry for God and he is turned away. And I would say that there are a lot of people in our world who feel turned away from religion. Sometimes it's blatant. Sometimes it's simply we use this insider language and this insider coded stuff. And so you show up to church and you feel like, I don't know how to fit in here. I don't, I, these are not my people. The invocation this morning and then the doxology. And it's like, um, this is why we do what we, we do with the church, because the question I find so many of us ask, all of us, every human, will they actually accept me for who I am? Will the good news be good enough for my bad news? Philip has every reason to say no. Literally every reason to say no. Uh, He's, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch, he's coming from the wrong people, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and Philip's the wrong guy. He is not a priest, and he's not in Jerusalem uh, and for Philip to do this, he's going to have to risk everything, everything. It was against the law. It was against the customs. It was against the traditions. And it was against the scriptures. But this guy is pointing to a passage. What about this one? What about this one? And Philip has a moment. I imagine it was a beautiful moment because I find most of our moments where we're broken open uh, are beautiful moments. And he realizes Jesus would do this. Jesus would do this. He would do this. So the story ends with this. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. He goes back rejoicing. Why? Because when the good news meets our bad news, Joy always follows. Joy always follows. Uh, And Philip, by the way, takes this language of sprinkling, and he takes it way further. The word baptism, baptismo, uh, mikvah in Hebrew, baptismo in Greek, means immersion. Um, What Philip understands is what you need is not just a little bit. You don't just need, you need to be reminded that God has cleansed you wholeheartedly. You get a completely fresh start. Uh, When I was 27 years old, I was at Butch's restaurant with my buddy. We met every week, every Wednesday. Have for years, have for years. And uh, I, at some point, he said, what's wrong? Because I, I was clearly disturbed. And, uh, and I had done the best I could do at that time to, like, fake it. And I tried to, like, I'll just go on all these dates and we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, and I said, but you know what? I think I'm done. I think I'm done. And then my friend said, okay, but I got somebody you got to meet first. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then on a blind date, 
that's got a somewhat sketchy story because he had to like connect us on Facebook. It was a whole thing, Facebook. And, um, but uh, through a blind date, I met my wife, Liza. Um, I'll, show you my, I'll show you a picture. But she's sitting here, so I don't want to embarrass her too much. This is Liza. Um, it's my family. Uh, Liza is, uh, well, she's clearly beautiful, but she's also um, one of the smartest and most intelligent people I know. Uh, I describe my wife as a deep listener. Does that make sense? You know, a lot of people listen, but some people deep listen, and like they actually feel what you're saying and not just the words you're using. Uh, she's one of those kinds of people. She's one of those kinds of people that when you walk in a room, I'll be like, everyone's doing great. And then she'll be like, yeah, but I think something's wrong with this person over here. And she's almost always right. Like she, like she sees, somehow she sees that. Um, uh, Liza's taught my kids that when, uh, so I, often I'll come home from work and, you know, like you got, I got my bag and a gym bag and I'm carrying all these things. And she's taught my kids to jump out from behind the door and scare me. Um, and I kind of now anticipate it most of the time, but I got, my five-year-old just loves it. Like she does it all the time and she'll say, we scared you, daddy. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it makes every night coming home really, really fun. Uh, my kids, uh, this is my boy, Abram. He's nine now. Abram is, uh, Abram is, he loves the piano. Uh, Abram is, he's, in, he's really into sports. He's into the Detroit Lions even more than I am. You know that proverb, raise up a kid in the way they should go? I did that. Uh, I just enjoy this kid's personality so much. Uh, he is, he's naturally curious and will ask a billion questions about everything, and he remembers all the answers, and it's, uh, I, I love that kid. Um, and then Joanna, she's my seven-year-old in the middle there, uh, and Joanna, uh, everybody who's ever met Joanna loves Joanna. That's, if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Uh, everyone, everyone, she is so thoughtful, and uh, literally anytime she doesn't know what to do, she will just make cards for people. That's her thing. She just loves to make cards and she loves people. And she'll go up to anyone. Like she'll talk to anyone. At one point we were a little bit worried. And so we, we said to her, hey, Joe, if somebody comes up to you and they said, hey, come back with me, we have candy, what would you say? And she goes, thank you. And I was like, <laughs> we, are in tr- we are in trouble. We are in trouble. All right, and then Lara, um, Lara, my youngest on the right, uh, she is... Uh, she loves to make people laugh. That's like her favorite thing. It's like her life's goal is to make you laugh. And she's just got this imagination. Um, I, uh, it's a really precious face because she will play with uh, these calico critters, like these little barnyard critters. And she'll play for hours and just make up these stories about these little critters. And so we try to sneak in and take little videos from time to time because uh, it's absolutely adorable. Uh, she's into the show Bluey. Have you seen Bluey? Australian kids TV show. We're getting a clap for Bluey. I love it. Uh, one day she comes out of the bathroom and she says, blimey, it's hot in there. <laughs> oh, I enjoy those kids so much. I, um, I tell you all this because what a loss it would have been if I would have given up at 27. What a loss. Uh, all of the laughter, all of the tickle fights and all of the the adventures and like, all of it, we would have, it would, all of our family's inside jokes that are just ours, like all of those would be, would be gone. If you think you're done, you're not. If you think you're disqualified, it's a lie from the pit of hell. If you think, well, what about this Bible passage and what about the thing I did over here and what about this list of rules and Jesus would never love me if, if this, if, look what I did. It's not true. 
Philip knows it. Jesus taught him it. And he commissioned his church to live it. Why do we do what we do as a church? We want to remove any barrier that would stand in the way of you coming to know this Jesus. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, for anyone in the room who's ready to throw in the towel, uh, Lord, for anyone in the room who's ready to give up, uh, for anyone in the room who feels like they are a fatal flaw, uh, Lord, for anyone in this room who feels like uh, there is a darkness that follows them wherever they go and it keeps tempting to eat them alive. Uh, Lord, for anyone in this room who has a list of reasons why um, this life is not worth living, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them of this eunuch's list. And then, Jesus, I pray that you would uh, do what you did through Philip and you would remind them uh, the Lord, not only are you good, but you can identify with the pain. And not only can you identify with the pain, Lord, you will go, you will leave heaven to be born in um, uh, a cave of manure and then die a criminal's death to remind us, Lord, that you will go to whatever lengths it takes to help people find their way back to you. And so Jesus as we celebrate new life and as we celebrate baptism and as we celebrate uh, second and third and 10,000th chances this morning, Lord, we do it all remembering that it's, it's you. It's you. Uh, you're the only one that's worth selling, our, selling out to, sell, giving our whole lives to, giving our soul to. And so, Jesus, we do this in awe of you. And we pray this in your name. And everybody said... We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.